We are in week four of what will be, Lord willing, a 12-part series called Strengthening the Things That Remain. We've already looked at a few topics. Um, Those words come out of Revelation 3 when Jesus is writing a letter to the church at Sardis and he says, you guys have a certain reputation that you're alive, but you're really not. And he says he wants you to wake up and strengthen those things that remain and are about to die because I haven't found your deeds complete or finished in the sight of my God. And this morning we're talking about a topic that I'm not sure I could think of anything else that needs to be strengthened more radically or pervasively than that of marriage. And that's what we'll be talking about this morning, marriage. Now, if you're young or unmarried or otherwise the theme of marriage just doesn't get you started or something, before you tune out, let me just suggest this. If you're young and not married yet, just based on numbers, there's a good chance you will be at some point. So it behooves you to have some idea of what marriage is about and what you can expect and how you can be well prepared for it on one hand. On another, though, even if you're unmarried all your days... You're going to interact with people every day that are married. And your family and your friends will be composed primarily of folks who are married. And you have the opportunity to impact them for better or for worse. And so again, it behooves you to know something about marriage. And last, it was an unmarried guy, probably middle-aged guy, that wrote some of the most profound theology in the New Testament on marriage. And that's the Apostle Paul. So... Uh, don't check out, tune in on the subject. Two, let me, let me preface uh, before I really get started by saying this. If you talk about anything serious and profound and something that's common to mankind, uh, it's almost certain that you will step on people's toes intentionally or otherwise. So this morning, when we're talking about marriage, it's almost certain that some of you will feel uncomfortable or convicted or challenged or something because you've had failure in a marriage in the past or because your marriage is not what you know it should be or would like it to be now. It could be any one of a number of things. And so before we even start, let me just say this to put you at ease as much as I can on one hand. If you hear something here, this would be true this Sunday morning or any other Sunday morning too. If you hear something that is convicting, then that should be a good thing. And you take that to the Lord and you deal with it in whatever way is appropriate. So if there's issues currently in your marriage and you're convicted, or if you've had a failed marriage in the past and you're convicted, if there's things you need to do, you should do those. Pray about it, read your Bible, get, get advice from anybody else if, if that's needed. But take care of it. That's what conviction should do for us. That's one thing. On the other hand, let's just say you've had a lousy marriage in the past. Or let's say you've had a failed marriage or multiple failed marriages. Whatever. If you've already done what's in your power to make those things right with God and with others, you're good to go. Do you know what I mean? That is, you shouldn't be carrying weights from the past. If you've already gone to the Lord and said, Lord, I've blown it or I blew it and I want to be right with you, or you've gone to spouses or children or ex-spouses or whatever, where you're at peace as far as you're able to be at peace. That's what God calls us to. 
So if you've done that, when you hear things this morning, don't take on a new sense of guilt or conviction if that's already been taken care of, okay? So this would be true on marriage. It's true on any other significant area of life. So if you're convicted, take that to the bank and do something with it. If you've already dealt with those issues, don't feel convicted or guilty this morning for something that's already taken care of. Uh, That we need to wake up and strengthen marriage, I hope, is beyond dispute. A few thoughts just getting going here. The world is trying to redefine marriage, and in some places legally it is, to be it's two men that live together, it's two women that live together. If you've read at all, you might know there's an academic in the Northeast who suggests that marriage between humans and animals would be appropriate too, as long as they're in committed relationships, of course. But we're redefining or we're attempting to redefine marriage today. That's the culture in which we live. But you know, even in the church, marriage and its value and what God intends for it has been scandalously devalued. And I say that if for no other reason than that, divorce rates among those who are professing Christians is about the same as the larger world in general. So that even Christians who are standing up before God and many witnesses and pledging themselves to each other get mad, get tired with each other, sleep around, whatever, and just chuck it and say, I'm done, I'm going to move on. And so marriage is definitely one of these things that we need to wake up and strengthen. It's definitely need of strengthening. When we talk about marriage and redefining it or defining the issue at all, uh, for us to define marriage means we have to do something about it. We have to have had something to do with its creation. So the problem with us redefining marriage is that we didn't create it, so we can't redefine it. We can see how it should be defined and what that looks like. So in Genesis 2, God makes it clear that marriage is His idea. Marriage is God's idea. It's His creation. So in Genesis 2.18, part of the creation story, you know, every time God's created something, He said God created it and He saw that it was good. And the first thing that in the creation account God speaks about and says this is not good is that Adam does not have a companion. Adam's alone. So Genesis 2.18, the Lord said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And you know the story. God anesthetizes Adam, so to speak, lays him down in sleep, takes out a rib, fashions Eve around that rib, and then brings her to Adam. And he gets it. He says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she's taken from man. A woman and man. The English is sort of nicer because in the Hebrew it's ish and isha. Adam is ish and Eve is isha. It has the same word. That there's this unity from inception, not just sexually later, but the first man and woman, they share the same substance. So when God's talking about unity in marriage, the first marriage was this very profound union where Eve was part of Adam and Adam was part of Eve. That's what God did. That's the first marriage. God says, not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make him a helper suitable for him. If you go to the New Testament, whenever the subject of divorce and remarriage comes up, and it's regular in the Gospels because in their day, just like ours, this was a big deal. And the idea was kicked around a lot. What's okay and what isn't? 
In Mark 10, when Jesus comments on this, he goes back to the beginning too to talk about marriage. And he says, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And he quotes Genesis, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And just on figuring out the definition of marriage, what it is and isn't, the key here is God made them male and female. God made them man and woman. God made them husband and wife. And God joined them together. Those are the keys. In other words, marriage is God's doing. It's not ours. We inherit a gift. We don't create something. We can't define it or redefine it because God's already done that. He instituted It's His. One man and one woman committed in a one flesh relationship for life, that's marriage. That's God's definition of marriage. One man, one woman committed in a one flesh relationship for life. Before we go into six reasons why marriage is a big deal and important, let me say this. When we talk about, when we focus this morning on marriage and how big a deal it is, we're not being idolatrous. Uh, Marriage is not the be-all, end-all for anyone. It's huge. And we need to wake up and smell the coffee. We we need to value it the way God wants us to. But it's not the be-all and end-all. A relationship with Christ is the most important thing for any of us in life. And some of us, probably in this room, may live all our days on earth unmarried, single. And if you live all your days on earth single, you're not somehow deficient. You're not second-hand goods. You're not lacking some essential quality in your personhood. Uh, If that was the case, Jesus would have had a problem, wouldn't he? Single all his life, as far as we know the Apostle Paul was too. This is not the norm, obviously. Most people get married. Most people want to get married. In fact, I've spoken to very few career-age singles who told me they believed God had called them to singleness. Most people want to get married. And it's because the way we're wired. But... Marriage is not the beginning and the end of our story. It's huge, and I think we undervalue it. But we're not making marriage an idol in talking about it this morning. We shouldn't make it an idol. So here's reasons. I've got six. You'd have others, probably more perhaps. Six reasons why marriage is a big deal and something we need to be committed to and strengthen. And and by the way, again... Marriage is a huge, huge topic. And really, all we're focusing on this morning is the big picture. It's what's God's intention in marriage. It's not any of the specifics at all. It's just to raise our eyes higher to say, this is what we should aspire to. The first thing is this. Marriage was given by God because He said man should not be alone. Marriage was instituted because God said it wasn't good for man to be alone. In other words... The primary, the first reason for marriage is God says it's the way that humans experience significant, satisfying interaction, fellowship, relationship with another human being. Marriage is that key relationship God intends for us to be known fully by someone else and to know them in this safe, interactive, permanent setting. So marriage is a big deal. And marriage says that, that to be deeply known and trusted and accepted, to have that and to give that is a big deal. And that's why God created marriage. At least it's one of the key reasons from Genesis. 
If that's the case, how important is it that marriage be, one, valued, and two, permanent? Do you see where this goes? If I don't know that my marriage is permanent, or I don't think that my spouse values this relationship, how safe an environment is it for me to disclose myself fully to someone else and be known by them and then reciprocate? It's not safe. And you know, man, because of sin, we've got a huge dilemma about not wanting to be rejected. Most of us all our life are looking for some form of acceptance. And so in marriage, this is one of the ways God wants us to experience we're known and somebody still loves us and accepts us. And ultimately, of course, that's in Christ. But practically, feet on the ground, that's supposed to happen in marriage. So that if we don't value marriage, if your spouse doesn't think you value their relationship in marriage, or they don't think it's permanent, you can't have that self-disclosure that marriage is supposed to be all about. You can't have that deep, emotionally satisfying, safe relationship with another human being if the relationship itself isn't valued and if you don't think it's permanent. In other words, if I think you're going to pull up stakes and go away... How safe is it and how much am I going to reveal? And how, and how much am I going to give myself to you if I think we're going to chuck it at any time? So marriage, want first, marriage is God's design for lifelong significant fellowship with another human being. The second reason it's a big deal and we need to wake up and strengthen it is marriage is the sphere where boys become men and girls become women, typically. We think men marry women, and that's sort of the case, but maybe less so over time. Boys marry girls, and, and young men marry young ladies, and hopefully this is the beginning of a, a growing process. In our fallen condition, for young guys who don't get married and have lots of energy, you know, it tends to get dispersed in all kinds of unhealthy ways. So I'm thinking of things like, uh, literally, uh, statistics bear this out too, crime, violence, gangs, or just juvenile, I'm a game boy all my life, or I just live this self-focused, self-centered life. I remain small and introverted because my interests haven't risen higher than my own life. But you take a young guy, and I think this is what God wants for most young guys, and you put him in a marriage relationship where he's responsible to love a wife, and to provide for a family, if he rises to the challenge at all, it compels him to be a man and to grow up. And that's a big deal. Uh, The world does not need grown-up boys. The world needs godly men. And women need godly men. And children need godly men. And marriage is this key vehicle where boys become men. Boys to men. It's what God does in marriage. It's not... So much a pop group, boys to men. That's what happens in marriage. But the same thing, little different dynamics happen for gals too. Because as young ladies take on that responsibility to support a husband and to nurture children, they live a life bigger than themselves and bigger than they were before. And it matures them and God's image is reflected in that nurturing and in that support. And it grows them up. And, you know, the beauty, because women are the refined element of humanity, and I say that no, no joking intended at all, women are the refined element of humanity. They tend to lose their beauty over age, my wife tells me routinely. But, you know, all flowers do. 
All flowers do. And when you see women praise in the scripture, I'm thinking of Proverbs 31. It's a wife who supported a husband and it's a mom who's nurtured children that, that those family members raise up and praise. I don't know what she looks like at this stage of life, but her husband and her children know her value. This is a big deal. Marriage helps men and women grow up and mature. The third thing is this. Marriage is the place children are meant to be brought into this world and nurtured and formed. Your life, any of us here, um, this isn't so much sociology, but you know, in the past it was sometimes argued that you were the product of your environment, which sort of meant you weren't responsible for who you were or what you did. Um, that's not true. We are responsible. But it is true that you tend to be the product of the home you grew up in. We tend to re- reproduce who and what we are. So I was chagrined as a young man to, to see myself somewhat objectively and realize that I sounded a lot like my dad and I looked a lot like my dad and I acted a lot like my dad. And, you know, sometimes this can be an encouragement and sometimes this can be otherwise. But the truth is we are formed by the marriages we grow up in. And if you've got children now, your marriage is the forum which is advising them and modeling for them life and values and what's important. So your marriage is the greenhouse in which your children are being nurtured for better or worse. Children brought into the world through your marriage and then nurtured and brought up and grown up in your marriage. That's where all that takes place. If we want to bless our children, if we want them to grow up to be happy in all the best senses and to know joy and peace in life and to be successful... Having a successful marriage, and I mean biblically successful marriage, is the best thing you can do for them. Because you'll model the things that God cares about. And they'll see that, and that will impact and inform who they are and what their expectations are for the future. Further, when your children grow up, your marriage is de facto one of the key models they have in their mind for their marriage. So ask yourself this, If you're married today, is my marriage something that I think should be reproduced in the lives of my children? Something that I want reproduced in the lives of my children? Or maybe more narrowly, on just the things that you have control of, am I modeling as a husband or a wife what I hope my sons or daughters will do as a husband or wife? Are the marriages we're living, are they what we would like to see for our children? That's a big, big deal. One marriage is, is impacting literally generations. That's no overstatement. One marriage affects generations. We, need, we tend to reproduce what we are, and so it's, it's, a good, uh, it's a good question once in a while just to ask, is the marriage we're modeling what we want reproduced in others our children included. The fifth thing is this. Marriages are the foundation of culture and communities and nations. Now, you know, families in significant numbers, pretty much post-World War II since the 60s, and there's lots of reasons for this, which we won't go into, but 
families have been disintegrating for the last about 50 years. And we have deluded ourselves because we want to minimize sometimes just the sense of guilt or the value or the significance of the failure or, or the value of marriage itself. We delude ourselves into thinking that schools and sports teams or community activities can somehow give your children what they do not get at home. And it doesn't happen that way. And it cannot work that way. Um, We send kids... Public schools are sort of in the crises in this area, you know. Sometimes rightly accused, I think, of, of doing a miserable job and sometimes being asked to do impossible jobs. So we take kids from families that aren't being nurtured, aren't being raised, aren't being given values, and we send them to school... And we think the school is going to do what mom and dad aren't. The schools can't do that. And your sports club can't do that. And your sports team can't do that. It's crazy to think what kids don't get at home, they're going to get from another venue. God means for them to get that nurture and their values and their models from mom and dad. So when mom and dad, when that breaks down, when marriages break down in this venue, you're not going to replace that with some larger form. It does not happen that way. It does not work that way. Uh, Back in the day, way, way back, when I was in grade school, social studies taught that the family was the basic building block of society. And that's true. And you cannot get away from that. So, if families are disintegrating, guess what's going to happen to culture and communities and nations? They're going to disintegrate too because the building blocks... And this is, again, this is God's idea. This isn't ours. This isn't a uh, 1980s or 1990s social study curriculum. God means for families to be the building block. So if they're falling apart, the structures that they support and form can't hold together better than they are. Those structures crumble because the individual elements are crumbling. You can't get away from that. The sixth thing, and I hope this doesn't come across at all esoteric because for me this is actually the bigger element. But the sixth reason marriage is important and we we need to strengthen it is this. Marriage is the clearest expression on earth of the relationship between the members of the Trinity and between Christ and the church. I don't know if this sounds like a big deal to you or not. You know, we tend to be affected by things that are important where we live, what impacts me directly. So if I tell you if, you if you have a great marriage, you'll have a happy life, that sounds appealing. But you'll have a great marriage sometimes to the degree that you get what marriage is supposed to be doing. And marriage, whether we think about it this way or not, is supposed to be God's clearest representation on the earth of the relationship that exists within the Trinity, God Himself, and the relationship between Christ and the church. So let me look at these briefly and individually. First is this, out of Genesis 1, the creation account. Listen to these two verses. God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, etc. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now, Did you notice the plurals in in this? Let us, God says, make man in our plural image, our plural likeness. Let them plural, male and female, plural, he created them. 
The truth is that in creation, in marriage, in men and women's relationships in marriage, the relationship in the Trinity is meant to be displayed. And unity with diversity, complementary roles, equality and yet difference at the same time, this describes both the Trinity and it describes marriage relationship. And God meant for marriages to reflect this happy, complementary, joyful relationship He's always, exi- He's always experienced in the Trinity. Marriages are supposed to reflect that same kind of relationship. So in the New Testament you read, the Father loves the Son. And the Son loves the Father. And I'll send you somebody just like me, that's the Spirit. And the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And the members of the Trinity delight to honor each other and praise each other. And this is supposed to be the model for marriage and it is supposed to be one of the key ways that the world sees God on the earth through your marriage. You know, humans are quick to set up idols, you know, things that are God's substitutes, and and it could be almost anything. And God said to the Jewish nation, don't make an image of me. But you know what, of course, God had already made an image of himself, hadn't he? It's us. We're God's image. And marriage inherently is supposed to represent God's relationship in the Trinity. Unity with diversity, complementary interactions towards singular goals. This is supposed to be your marriage and mine. We should reflect God on earth. If you go to Ephesians 3, verse 14 and 15, Paul writes there, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Paul says that every marriage and every family on earth derives its essential character or quality from God Himself. We reflect, whether we know it or not, God's image in marriage, not just singularly in our individual human status. That's true too. Every one of us bears the image of God individually. But in the creation account, when God said He's going to reproduce His image, it's plural. And it's male and female, it's in marriage. So marriage is meant to reflect the life of the Trinity. Paul goes on in Ephesians 5, this is probably one of the best known passages on marriage, related to Christ and the church. Now just listen, I'm going to sort of highlight my way through this, but wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. As the church is subject to Christ, so wives to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands also ought to love their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also the church. He quotes from Genesis, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And then he closes with this. This mystery is great. Marriage, Paul? No. Christ and the church. There's this seamless interaction back and forth in which Paul has started talking about marriage relationship, and he has seamlessly moved in, and he's talking about Christ and the church. And your marriage and mine, every marriage on earth, is supposed to be a representation of this loving, sacrificial, mutually blessing relationship that Christ has with the church. So this makes marriage a very, very big thing 
indeed. If there's this much at stake and more in marriages, it's no wonder that the enemy of your soul and mine and the enemy of Christ and the enemy who influences this world is hard at work to disparage and to tear down marriages and our estimation of marriages. You know, if we want to wage spiritual warfare successfully, if you want to spit in the devil's eye, let me challenge you to do this, have a great marriage. That's spiritual warfare. Because when you have a great marriage, you're doing all these things. You're blessing another human being. You're blessing your children. You're blessing those around you by recreating an image of the Trinity and of Christ and the church. I can't think of any more profound, more basic spiritual warfare than simply having a loving, successful marriage. That's spiritual warfare. That's success. We need to wake up and strengthen the things that remain. You know, too, in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, I find this interesting that these themes of fidelity in marriage and blessing children are woven together with the notion of the return of Christ. And, of course, not seen in Malachi as the return of Christ is It's called the Son of Righteousness, rising with healing in His wings. But when God sets up His kingdom on earth personally by the return of Jesus to the earth, two things He's talking about is fidelity in marriage and fathers' hearts being turned back to their children. About this blessing, this effect of blessing on parents to children. When when Christ institutes His kingdom, one of the first things He does is He puts marriages and families back the way they're supposed to be. That's one of the last words in the Old Testament out of the book of Malachi. That's significant. Putting feet to these things, let me suggest a few things depending on where you find yourself in life. First, if you're married, if you haven't done this in a while or feel at all that you need to, would you recommit with your spouse? How about this as a minimum? Not to dishonor Christ through your marriage, to have a grown-up view and a grown-up aspiration to honor Christ in your marriage and to refuse little-minded views of what you're called to and the way you interact with your spouse. How about just, I'm not going to dishonor Christ by having a lousy marriage. That'd be a, a good starting place. We can build on that, but at least let's start there. How about not disparaging our spouse in our own minds or in front of others? How about honoring our spouse in all the ways we can? And maybe there's areas you can't. That's okay, but honoring your spouse in all the ways you can. We're talking about high and lofty themes here. If you're talking about reflecting the Trinity or Christ in the church, we're talking high and lofty themes here. And you might look at your own life or your own marriage and say, there's just no way. You know, we're, we're made of clay, not feet of clay, uh, bodies and heads of clay maybe. Uh, it's not that this is easy. It's not at all. You know, you take two sinful human beings, saved or not, and you put them together, you're going to get a sinful situation. You're going to sin against each other. And James says, we sin all the time. We sin regularly. You're going to sin in your marriage. And so you've got to have a proactive mindset that you say, we're going to confess our sins quickly and we're going to forgive quickly. We're not going to let these things build up. 
You know, in almost any area of sin in life, you'll see there's always a progression. There's one step after another. And what you want to do is you want to cut those progressions off early, not late. You know, by the time spouses aren't talking to themselves anymore, a lot of water's gone under the bridge. And they've built up resentment and anger and bitterness over time. You don't want to let that happen. If you're going to honor Christ and have a marriage that you love being in, it's going to be because you confess your faults quickly and readily and because you forgive quickly and readily. And that means forgiving means you don't keep bringing that up to your spouse, by the way. It's work, it's painful, and it requires doing this over and over again. But that's, that's what it takes. Also, choose to see your spouse through the eyes you did before you got married. You know, most people that I've known, they really wanted to get married. And maybe years later, they're like, eh. But think back to how you were thinking about your spouse before your wedding. And entertain that same mentality and those same notions again. Go back, Jesus says in other letters in Revelation, go back to your first love. Think about your spouse as you did before you got married. That's a good one, isn't it, Julie? Yeah. And if you find, you might be at a point, and this happens semi-regular, you might be at a point where you just say, you know what, emotionally I'm not there. My will's weak. I'm sort of, I'm passive. I may not even care right now. Ask God, just tell God those things and say, Lord, would you help me? to care about it again? Would you build my emotions up again and my will so that I can re-engage and get at this thing again and start over? And make it your aim that your marriage is going to be a little bit of heaven on earth because that really is what God intends for you and your marriage and for the impact and the benefit of those around you. If you're not married now but you hope to be married in the future, let me ask you this. Are you prepared to be a great husband or an outstanding wife. Are you prepared right now? <clears throat> this is a big deal. You know, people often say, my kids ran around with the wrong crowd. And then I say, no, your child is the wrong crowd. Or we think, I really want, uh, I want a great husband for my daughter, but my daughter's not going to be a great wife. What's wrong with this picture? Ask yourself, If you have aspirations or if you vaguely or remotely hope to be married in the future, what kind of a spouse are you preparing yourself to be? And who wants their child that they love and adore to be married to you? That's a pretty good indication. What kind of a person are you and what kind of a person are you becoming? And whatever you are when you get married, that's what you bring to your marriage. And if that's strengths, you've got strengths to build on. And if you haven't been building into your life so that you're a grown-up, young man or young woman, you've just multiplied the difficulty that you're going to have in marriage. So what kind of a person are you now? What kind of a spouse will you be if you get married next month, next year, or soon? Also, are you keeping yourself for your future spouse? And yes, I mean sexually here. I mean your body. You know, our culture, we trash sex because we devalue it. It's common. There's a passage in Proverbs 5 where the dad's talking to his son and he compares sex to water. And he says, the sex you enjoy, son, should be like a fountain you have at your house, period. Not like water that's poured out in the streets for anybody to walk through. And that's the sex most of us know about in today's culture. It's common and it's devalued. 
God wants you to save yourself because your body is supposed to be your gift, part of your gift of who you are, to your spouse. That's what God wants. So you present your body. They used to say in marriage, with my body I worship you. It's that thought that you're keeping yourself for your spouse. I loved it on the way to church this morning. Listen to the radio, a little bit of news. Uh, Tebow, the quarterback for Florida, was he's two-time national champion football. He's the Heisman Trophy winner. And in this press conference, I guess just this last week, to a sports figure with the football season approaching, some reporter yells out, Are you keeping yourself pure until marriage? And he didn't skip a beat. He said, Yes, I am. You know, in culture, it's not cool to be what's called pure. And by the way, that doesn't mean sex and marriage is impure. I don't even like the way that's said. It just means you're, you're saving yourself and sex for your spouse. It's uncool in this culture, but you've got to be willing to go against the tide if your marriage is going to be what God wants it to be. And also, last on that is be very careful. If you're a young gal or a young guy and you're thinking about marriage couple thoughts. One, make sure that the people who know you and care about you think highly of the person you would consider marrying. Ask the people that know you well and care about you what they think of that person. And I kid you not, in my family that I grew up with, and the family I grew up with, great, great, our parents were great uh, role models and great marriages, but there had been marriage failure for sure. And I can tell you in the three that I can think of, right off the top, my parents told my siblings this is not a good fit. Every one of them failed. People that know you and care about you generally have a pretty good sense that this person is a good fit for you or they are not. And you can ask yourself this. Will my relationship with this person make me a better person? Will my relationship with this guy or this gal, will it make me more the person in Christ God means me to be? If it won't, it shouldn't be an option. Because again, marriage is not an idol and our first loyalty is to Christ. So I can't marry a person if I think that that relationship is going to pull me away from Christ. I don't have that option. I need to have a clear sense that I feel called to this relationship. This relationship is blessed by those who know and love me. And I believe this person, this young gal, this young guy, this older gal, this older guy, is going to help me grow in Christ's likeness. If they don't, they're not a fit. They shouldn't be an option. And last, while you're not married, if you're not married, you've got lots of opportunity to encourage people in marriages to keep going or to go at it again. You know what I mean? You interact with people who are married all the time. And I'll bet you interact with people you know are having troubles in their marriage. You can speak into their life. You can be an encouragement or a discouragement to them in their marriage. You have an impact in their life. Don't disparage marriage in your thoughts or in your mind. If you want to be married and you're not, and you want to belittle marriage because it makes you feel better, don't go there. Don't go there. And remember to raise marriage up in the sense that God wants it to be. Choose to remember that when you look at marriages around you, Lord willing, those are reminders to you of what God Himself is like and of Christ's sacrificial love for the church. 
and of the kind of loving relationship we as Christians are brought into in the church in Christ too. I think related to this wake-up call, wake up and strengthen what remains, it's like God gives us this gold ring, pure gold with diamonds on it, and what we see is a trinket to play with instead of this thing of supreme value God means us to see it as. So we need to wake up, see the big picture, and strengthen what remains, in this case, marriage at least. Let's pray. Lord, I know that ultimately you are not only the beginning and end of all existence, Father, you are the end of all our search for significance, for meaning, for acceptance, for love, for fulfillment. Lord, we cannot get in marriage what we do not ultimately get from you. And I pray for each of us here that we would look to you ultimately for our needs for our significance, for acceptance. And I pray that knowing it from you, Lord, we would be able to dispense it and give it to others as well. Spouses, children, friends, fellow Christians, people at work, Lord. Help us look to you for those ultimate needs. But then, Lord, also help us to value marriage as you mean us to. Help us to raise it back up as the treasure and the gift you mean it to be. Help us to recommit in our own marriages. Help us to recommit to help others in theirs. Lord, help us not to to cooperate, as it were, with the enemy in tearing down that which you're building up. Help us to have your mind on marriage. Help us to strengthen this thing, this institution, this reflection of your image and glory. Help us to strengthen it, Lord, ultimately to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.